Good morning. This morning, scripture reading is coming out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 to verse 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be seen for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, before we pray, uh, just a reminder that at the end of the sermon we sing a song. And the song is an invitation to, to praise God for the greatness of His blessing in our life. It's also an invitation to change. Sometimes we come to a point in life where we discover that having our hands on the management, on the wheel of the management of our own life has been steering us in wrong directions. And it's time to let go of that will and to give our life and trust to God and to obey the gospel. And there will be shepherds down here at the, uh, the front that would be able to teach you and to talk to you about what that means to obey the gospel and to trust God. But it's also a time that, you know, for those of us who have been disciples of Jesus for a number of years, we find ourselves at times struggling with whatever we, you know, we struggle with. A struggle is a struggle. And it's also an invitation at those moments to come down to talk to the shepherds, to have them pray with you in person. It's also time for you to let the church know in case you want the church to be praying for you as well. And there's a greatness that comes into our life and a blessing of God because the church has prayed for us to overcome something that we have in our life. And that's going to happen at the end of this sermon and during the singing of that song. And let's begin, as we get into the text this morning from John 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask in this moment that you will give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear in such a way that the blessing of your presence, the blessing of your love, the blessing of your wisdom, and the blessing of your will come pouring into us in such a way that we are changed. We want to be people of love. We want to be people of mercy. We want to be people that when folks look at us, they see the meaning of what it means for you to be called love. We are grateful for the opportunities, Father, that you give us every day to bring this kind of love into our city, to stream this kind of love 
into the lives of people around us. People with a God-shaped hole in their heart. And we ask for you, Father, as we look into this text, that we hear your word and that we turn toward you and are changed. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the early 1990s, I saw, as many of you did, the highly acclaimed movie by Steven Spielberg, Schindler's List, one of the most highly acclaimed movies in all of cinematic history. It's the story, the highly improbable story of a German businessman by the name of Oskar Schindler. He was a womanizer and a war profiteer. He was a Nazi. But oddly enough, the one person who saved more people from the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps than anyone else. I saw the movie, as many of you did, and for many days afterwards I was moved and troubled by it. And there are a lot of really brilliant scenes that Spielberg films in this movie. But one of the most brilliant is towards the end of the movie where Schindler is in his factory. He has been told that the war is over, and so he goes out to tell his employees the news. His employees in that factory, if you know the story, are the Jews that make up the names on the Schindler's list. And Mr. Schindler tells them that they are free to go home, but that he is going to be hunted probably for the rest of his life. And it's a very moving scene, and Spielberg films it with great genius. And these Jewish folk begin to gather around him as he walks slowly to his car. And as he sees his car, he reaches out to it. And he says, my car, my car, my car. Why did I save my car? In that moment, he realizes that had he sold his car, that he could have given the proceeds to the Nazis and could have bought three more Jewish folk to come and to be a part of his factory workers. And he's overwhelmed at the thought. And he looks down at his jacket and he sees his pen, an expensive pen. And he says, my pen, my pen, my pen. Why did I keep my pen? You know, the amazing thing about Schindler is that He did not really give the Jews much thought until he got that little Jewish CPA. And it was that little CPA that pointed out to him the children and the women and the aged men who were getting on those trains bound to Auschwitz. And he began to see in their plight the need. He began to see the need. I wonder if those in the world who have believed the gospel and have been transformed by forgiveness and the love of God as they are brought into his family if we see the need. The question for us this morning is, do we see the need? The world is a beautiful place, as you know. But it's also a fallen world. And the world was created to be a place where human beings can thrive and flourish. But it has become staggeringly cruel, and brutal, as you know. Humans who are made in the image of God, in their fallenness, have introduced violence and hurt and injustice and racism and betrayal and anxiety and rage and tears into God's creation. Do we see the need? Do we see the need? The people you would think that would possess 
the clearest eye for seeing the need, have, quite frankly, a very sketchy record in this regard. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that the Bible is completely candid and open and honest on this point. Take, for example, the Old Testament book of Jonah. You have a prophet of God called to go to the great city of Nineveh in the land of his enemy and to speak to them about God and their salvation from a pending judgment. And Jonah, having been given that commission by God, does the inconceivable. He runs in the opposite direction from, of Nineveh and tries to go away from the mission he's been given. And you know the story. God uses a storm and he uses a great fish to get Jonah back on track. And Jonah gets to Nineveh. He preaches a very simple sermon. And surprisingly, the entire city repents. Judgment is averted. It is the greatest response to a single sermon. And Jonah, instead of being elated, is hacked off to the core of his being. He has on a blinder when it comes to Ninevites. They don't deserve it. And he says to God, in one of the most surprising verses in the entire Old Testament, He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious... Now, we're talking about the Old Testament God here. You are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in what? Love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Seems like Jonah, in reading the Old Testament, realized that God of the Old Testament was a God of love as well. But here's the question that that keeps me up at night. How does Jonah know that God is like this? How does Jonah know that God is like this? That He's gracious and compassionate, He's slow to anger and abounding in love, and He really wants to relent from sending calamity. You know what the answer is? He knows it, Because he has had a first-hand experience of God's love. But he has blinders on. He has blinders on that keep him from seeing the need of the Ninevites. I would offer that disciples of Jesus struggle with the same thing. I would say that the folks, all of us, members of this church body struggle with the same thing. We drive past the homeless. And we don't see them. We walk past the desks of co-workers and do not really see them or have a clue as to what's going on inside their heart. We assume falsely that affluence is a safeguard. And we do not see the emptiness. We pass soul after soul after soul. And we do not see the griefs the sorrows, the desperations, the fears, and the invisible tears. Of all the people in this community church, we should see the need. But we deal with blinders. One of the most instructive passages in the entire Bible in helping us to see the need is John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are going along one day. They run into a man born blind, blind from birth. 
And there is no hint of compassion, generosity on the part of the disciples. Just really a blunt question in front of the man himself. And in verse 2, they ask, Rabbi, speaking to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, believe it or not, the disciples see an impossibly lost human being. They're walking along and casually, even nonchalantly, ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? And I mean, you can hear the blind man hearing them and saying, hey, 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 I'm right here. I can hear you. I can hear what you're saying. I'm right here. But their question implies a couple of things. If his parents are to blame, then it's out of the blind man's control to do anything about it. If, if it's the blind man's sin, then it's woven into his very DNA from birth. And he can't do anything about it. And Jesus stops to face them as they ask this question. And he says to them in verse 3 that it is neither. It is neither. This human being is an opportunity for the work of God to become displayed in him. And what he is going to teach them in this miracle is something that he's been trying to teach them all along. That what is impossible with men is possible with God. I mean, think about the, the, the theme of the Bible and the stories of the, of the Bible. Abraham gets a son in his old age because it's possible with God. Israel is redeemed from slavery in Egypt because it's possible with God. David defeats Goliath because it's possible with God. Nineveh repents at one of the worst sermons ever preached. It's like four words. But that's not impossible for God. The one who will take away the sins of the world is born of a virgin from Nazareth. The Messiah himself is beat into the dust. He's crucified. He's dead. But three days later, what? Resurrection. Over and over and over. The Bible tries to get into our minds that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And the power of God comes to bear on this blind man. His sight is restored. The man is rejoicing. The neighbors come onto the scene. And you know what the neighbors see? The neighbors see a nobody. The neighbors see a, mo- a, a nobody. In verse 9, the, dis- the, the neighbors begin arguing if this is the man who was born, born blind and, and, and begging, and this is a guy that they have seen every day as they walked around him and walked over him every day on the sidewalk asking for alms. They have seen him every day, and yet they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. They have not looked at him as they stepped around him on their way to work. They see a beggar that, rather than a human being that is made in the image of God, and as a beggar, he is dismissed. And if we are not careful, we will do the same thing every day in our own community in this modern age. We will see the troubled and the broken, and we will say to ourselves, thank God, I'm so glad that's not me. Well, no one is having any luck figuring out what has happened, so they bring him to the religious leaders, and they explain what happened. And the religious leaders have a problem, too. In verse 16, they say, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, For he, Jesus, does not keep the Sabbath. You know what the Pharisees see? The Pharisees see a limited God. Some of the Pharisees, not all, are operating from this bad theology that says that God would never heal a person on the Sabbath. That this is not 
the way that God operates. That God does not do that. That there is a 24-hour period during the week in which God stops doing what He does the other six days. That's what they think. And Jesus continually has to rein them in and to deal with this bad thinking on how God operates in the world. Well, you know the story. They call the parents in. And the parents see something to be afraid of. One of the saddest but revealing moments, not only in this story, but what human beings are capable of. The parents are called in, but they don't want to get involved. They respond, he's of age, ask him. He's old enough, he's a man. But the reason for it is that they're afraid. In verse 22, his parents said this, John tells us, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. The miracle of a man born blind receiving his sight begins with one who saw him clearly. Going all the way back to the very first verse of John chapter 9, we read, as he went along, Jesus saw a man. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus sees a man, and seeing the person is where it begins. He is able to see the blind man that everyone else has become blind to. He sees the woman in John 8 who is caught in adultery and says to the woman, I don't condemn uh, condemn you. Go and sin no more. He sees a woman at the well who has to draw water alone because of the mistakes she has made in her life and no one wants any of that rubbing off on them. And he asks her for a drink. He sees the rich young ruler better than the man sees himself and loves him and tells him the truth. He sees that short little sawed-off tax collector up in the sycamore tree that everyone tries to avoid. I mean, trying to avoid a guy from the IRS. I mean, that's just part of our DNA, right? But Jesus goes home to eat with him. He goes home to eat with him. He sees the prostitute that has only been looked down upon and brings her into the kingdom of God. We need to take off. If we're going to live our lives the Jesus way, we need to take the blinders off. Let me suggest three things. Number one, daily discover and remove your personal blinders. Remove your blinders. Every human being struggles with this. It's not just a white problem. It's not just a black problem or a brown problem. It is a human problem to have blinders on when it comes to people in our world. And there are clues that, that we have this issue that we need to deal with before God when we begin to have this mentality that says us and them. It's us and them and not we. Or we find ourselves saying, those people, those people. The second thing is to cultivate seeing. Cultivate seeing. There's a Jack Lemmon movie that was not very popular. It was called Mass Appeal. And there's a scene in which a young man stands up before a church and he says, you know, all my life I I had goldfish. And as a young man, as a, a kid, I had these goldfish. And they were in this little goldfish bowl. And one day I put it too close to the window in the middle of the summer. And I looked at the fish and I spoke to the fish. And then I went away and when I came back, the fish were dead. 
And he said, you know, for, for a moment, I mean, I didn't understand. I was talking to the fish, and they, they looked okay. And he said, I didn't have fish ears to hear that they were screaming in desperation. And he said, that's what I want to do with my life, is develop fish ears in order to hear the cries for help. So we start praying that God will help us to see the people around us, that he will give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear. It starts with the people you encounter every day, and it widens. And when you take measures to see, God will help you see more clearly than ever before. It's a couple, a family in our church with small children. I may have told you this story before, that every Christmas morning they get up and they make 100 breakfast tacos. And they bag them up, and they take their, their small kids, and they go out into San Antonio, and they give that on Christmas morning to homeless people. And they say, bless you, and Merry Christmas, and they give them the gift of food. Then they go back to their house to open gifts. And one of the amazing things that the father was telling me this last year was that it's not just Christmas morning. He said, when we drive around town, my little kids see the homeless people. And they say, how can we help that one? How can we help that one? Cultivating the seeing. And then strive every day to be kind. Strive every day to be kind. There is something about kindness, of treating people with dignity, that opens the doors of people's hearts to the possibility of the kingdom of God coming into their hearts as good news. Kindness makes us approachable. Kindness makes us generous. And and it, it makes us wide open conduits of grace that has come into our own life from God. Kindness sees. Kindness listens. Kindness touches and kindness gives. And kindness celebrates good things. Kindness celebrates the good things that come into people's lives. We want to be the kind of people that celebrate something good. Where were the people in John 9 celebrating the great miracle of this man being born blind, being given his sight? No one celebrates it except the man. One of the saddest part of the story is that no one is celebrating. I've told you a long time ago, while we were missionaries in Brazil, there was a day when a homeless couple showed up at our our place and they were talking to us. I mean, it was kind of obvious that the young woman had been pregnant for about 36 months. I have never seen anybody that pregnant. And they've, they've come from the doctor and they were asking us at the church, do you have anything that we could do so we could get some money for some medicine that my wife needs? We said, absolutely. I'm going to go get the medicine. And knowing that there's dignity in work, we gave them a, a little task to do. They did it. We gave them the medicine. They asked if they could come back. And they came back and they came back and they started working. They started working and they came back and they started working. And the next thing you know, we're building this relationship with them. And then one day, they say, could we... Could we, could we have a conversation with you? We say, sure, come on in. So they sit down, and they are absolutely scared to death. They're trembling. And they say with tears in their eyes, uh, we are HIV 
positive. We have AIDS. From dirty needles and drugs. It's an ep epidemic during those years in Brazil. And they said, we don't blame you if, if you just send us away. They knew that everyone was scared. So what we decided to do, the church had been around long enough for us to be able to give some decisions to them to make. So we brought in an expert in the medical field dealing with uh, HIV uh, and, and AIDS, asked him to come. He answered every question for an hour and a half that Sunday in Bible class, answered every question. I got up that morning, we preached about how the love of God, the love of God is, is not just a beautiful thing, but it's a courageous thing. And at the end of the service, we had a time where the, the church, those that could stick around, stuck around, there's about 150 people or so. And we just laid it out. Marcos and Eliani are right around the corner in the hallway, scared to death. And we began to lay out the story. And we said, you've, you've got all the, the facts. you got all the facts. We're going to put it into your hands. What's next? Silence. Silence. And then um, the wife of one of the members stood up and said, I, I don't know about you, but my God, I think we ought to take care of these two people that we love. And everyone started clapping. Uh, we went and got Marcos and Eliani. And from that day forward, they had a home in our church building. And about two weeks after that, Eliani comes up and she says, I just, I, just, I just want to be a part of this. I just want to be a part of this. I want to be baptized. And we baptized her into Christ. My prayer is that our church is given more and more opportunities to celebrate the goodness of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the presence of God, coming into the lives of the broken and brokenhearted. I pray our church stops labeling people as a sinner beyond help because we know personally the one who takes our sins upon himself in order for us to receive his righteousness. I pray for the day when the reason for a person's sin is less important than the sharing of good news and the kingdom of God is here and it's available to every human being regardless of color and gender or past. I pray for the day that we no longer step over and past and around human nobodies because we more than anyone else see people are made in the image of God. I pray for the true knowledge of God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in between to erase the limitations of what we can and cannot do in His creation because what is impossible for man is possible for God. And I pray for the day when we will no longer fear any human because there is no fear in love. Love casts out fear. Love is what never fails. Love is what endures. Love is the context for the truth that we speak. And love is what helps us to see the need. And at the end of time, when heaven and earth are together once again, and all the sons and daughters of God gather and they see each other for the first time. And they see each other for who they were truly created to be. We will approach each other hand in hand, arm in arm, with eyes brimming with the tears of joy 
And we once again, in the presence of God, sing the old hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's stand and sing. Amazing grace, how.